This week's episode is brought to you by Audible. Audible has over 180,000 titles to choose from, all compatible with iPhone, Android, Kindle, or your MP3 player of choice. For listeners of the show, Audible is offering a free 30-day trial membership, complete with credit for a free audiobook of your choice. You can cancel any time and keep the free book, or keep going with one of Audible's subscription offers. Go to audibletrial.com japan to claim your offer. This week, I'm going to recommend Debt, The First 5,000 Years, by David Graeber. Dr. Graeber, who is an anthropologist, has written a book on a subject that, as a graduate student and somebody who hopes to do things like buy a house one day, is near and dear to my heart, and, I imagine, to the hearts of many others. Want to understand the tangled financial web in which we all live? Well, here's one good place to start. Go to audibletrial.com slash japan to claim your copy. Hello, and welcome to the History of Japan podcast, episode 138, The Fall of the Samurai, part 21. So, we finally made it to the end. Two things on the agenda before we put the series in the rearview mirror. First, we're going to wrap up the life stories of some of our more key players in the sort of where-are-they-now section. And second, we're going to talk about the grand themes of the time period we've been discussing. In the end, what does it all mean? Well, on the government side of things, I think there's no better place to start than Okubo Toshinichi. Okubo had been the childhood friend of Saigo Takamori, but the two split over the proposed invasion of Korea specifically, and the fate of the samurai class more generally. Now, Okubo's old friend was a decapitated corpse lying in the hills of Kagoshima, and Okubo was probably the most powerful man in the Japanese government. He was the sole surviving major loyalist leader from Satsuma, and probably the most powerful man sitting in the halls of Tokyo. He wouldn't have much time to enjoy it, though. On May 14th, 1878, as he was headed for what had once been the Shogunate Palace and was now the Imperial Palace, Okubo was ambushed by a group of seven samurai. Seeing Okubo, not without reason, as the cause for their misfortunes, the group cut him down where he stood. Funnily enough, he died not that far from where another Japanese leader with a very different vision, Inosuke, had been cut down 18 years earlier. Okubo's death deprived Satsuma of its control of the government, and helped create a situation that would become the norm until the 20th century, Choshu control of the Meiji government. Ito Hirobumi, Yamagata Aritomo, Inoue Kaoru, and Kido Takayoshi entered our story as young men, in Ito and Yamagata's case, they literally entered as school kids learning at the feet of Yoshida Shoin. Now they were the most influential men in Japan, and they would keep that status for decades. In a very real way, Choshu won the Meiji Restoration, and these four men did the best by far in the grand competition for post-war power. 
I'm not going to get too into their lives after this point, because in some cases, like Ito, we've already talked about it, and in others, the details just aren't worth getting into. I just think it's interesting that probably the last people you'd bet on as future masters of Japan ended up taking home all the marbles. So what about all the former leaders of the Tokugawa government? Well, first and foremost, let's talk about the Tokugawa house itself. It hasn't been that long, and hopefully we haven't all forgotten about Tokugawa Yoshinobu, the last shogun who decided to surrender peacefully and hopefully avoid protracted war. After his surrender, Yoshinobu was placed under house arrest by the new government, but the zeal that had once existed for executing him just wasn't really there anymore. He was quickly pardoned by the new government, and his status as an enemy of the court rescinded. Yoshinobu was granted a substantial stipend by the new government and proved to be a decent investor. He was able to live comfortably for the rest of his life. Yoshinobu's patriotism versus his opportunism is open to question before the Boshin War, but afterwards he proved a consummate believer in the Japanese national cause. He supported the new government's domestic and foreign initiatives and was rewarded in 1902 with ennoblement. He was made a baron of the new peerage and granted a seat in the upper house of the Diet. The upper house was reserved for those granted a spot in the peerage as well as the families of former daimyo and court aristocrats. Yoshinobu, in the end, was able to take a seat in the closest thing to his vision of a senate of daimyo that would ever exist. Tokugawa Yoshinobu died in 1913, a beloved patriot and political leader. His great-grandson, Tokugawa Yoshitomo, now runs a public foundation dedicated to promoting the positive side of the Tokugawa legacy, as well as a successful brand of Tokugawa Shogun coffee. The Tokugawa family also managed to link itself back up with the newly reascendant imperial line. Yoshinobu's daughter and granddaughter both married into the imperial family. Of course, not all Tokugawa imperial marriages ended up well. If you still remember Princess Kazunomiya, who married a sickly boy shogun as part of a brokered alliance between the court and the Bagufu, well, after her husband died, she was consigned to political irrelevancy. She became a Buddhist nun and lived out the rest of her days in a monastery. Katsu Kaishu, the Tokugawa naval leader and the man who negotiated the surrender of Edo, proved successful enough to navigate the post-war environment. He briefly retired to Shizuoka to the south of Tokyo, but in 1871, Kaishu received a message from the government asking him to come out of retirement to help build the Imperial Navy. He said yes, and became one of very few non-Satsuma Choshu leaders in the new navy. It's a little hyperbolic, but I have heard him referred to by some as the father of the Imperial Japanese Navy. He too was elevated to the new peerage and served as Navy minister and one of the main counselors to the Imperial government before his death in 1889. Even members of the hated Shinsengumi were able to find their peace after the war. Saito Hajime, one of the few surviving Shinsengumi leaders, found a job after the war where his swordsmanship skills were appreciated. He became a captain in the Tokyo Metropolitan Police Department, teaching sword fighting to police recruits, 
and helping take down opposition to the new government, just as he'd once tried to hunt down the people now signing his paychecks. But what about the most hated man of them all, the man who ran the Tokugawa system of repression in Kyoto, Matsudaira Katamori? Well, after his domain of Aizu went down in flames in November 1868, Matsudaira II was placed under house arrest. Eventually he was released, though he also had to give up headship of the Matsudaira clan. Katamori spent the rest of his life as a chief priest of Niko Toshogu Shrine, the shrine north of Tokyo where the spirit of Tokugawa Ieyasu was deified. Unlike almost everyone else from the Tokugawa leadership, Matsudaira was never offered a court pardon or a rank in the new government. He died in 1893. Indeed, Matsudaira's home domain of Aizu received a lot of the blame for the war. For a long time afterwards, there was a strong stigma against the descendants of Aizu samurai. That stigma was in many ways not really removed until 1928, when Matsudaira Katamori's granddaughter, Matsudaira Setsuko, married Emperor Hirohito's younger brother. Even then, General Shiba Goro, one of the leaders of the Imperial Army in the Second World War, complained on occasion that his Aizu heritage held him back in fights for promotion with his peers. The stigma of treason on Aizu still has some emotional heft to it to this day. The current head of the Matsudaira family and grandson of Katamori, Matsudaira Morisada, turned down an appointment to be chief priest of Yasukuni Shrine in the 1980s. Yasukuni, remember, enshrines all who die in service to the Japanese military from the Boshin War on. Morisada objected to the appointment on the grounds that those who died defending Aizu were deliberately excluded from enshrinement. This gets at one of the more interesting parts of the Meiji Restoration, in my opinion. On the one hand, the story of the Restoration is described by the historian Ivan Morris as without any real heroes or any real villains. There's a tendency to depict everyone on both sides of the conflict as fighting for the most noble of intentions, in defense of their ideals, of home, or their friends. Everyone was out there for the right reasons. The whole thing makes me think of nothing so much as the original Star Trek episode with the Romulan commander, who says to Captain Kirk, You and I are of a kind, in a different reality, I could have called you friend. Balance of Terror, Season 1, Episode 8, and yes, thankfully... I am not so far gone that I didn't have to look that one up. This narrative of everyone being on the right side was a powerful one for post-Restoration Japan, where everybody, regardless of where their sympathies had lain, had to move on to a new future. The victorious couldn't afford the resentment that high-handed treatment would bring, and the defeated couldn't afford to nurse their resentments at the expense of the future. It's also how, today, you end up with Tokugawa defenders like the Shinsengumi as pop culture superstars, complete with slews of anime and manga and even a dating sim about their stories, and legions of fangirls and probably some fanboys arguing over who the cutest member of the Shinsengumi was. And that is a history debate I am way too afraid to wade into. But alongside this narrative lies a way more adversarial one, 
one that held traitorous domains from the east and north as villains who fought against the emperor. Matsudaira Katamori's life is a good example of this. He was never granted the same forgiveness as other treasonous daimyo. However, the notion that those who fought on the wrong side of the Boshin War were traitors did outlive Matsudaira himself, well into the 20th century certain career paths, especially in the army and the civil service, might prove challenging for someone from a disloyal domain background. And this, I think, does get to a very interesting tension in the Meiji Restoration and in history more generally. History is really just about telling stories. What historians do is we take a series of events or people or ideas and we think of a narrative that ties them all together. The thing about a good narrative, though, is that there are certain tropes a good story is supposed to have. Plucky underdogs, courageous heroes, and of course, a good villain. And this story has good underdogs and some good heroes, regardless of whichever side, Tokugawa or Loyalist, you favor. But what about villains? And this gets to the fundamental problem of the Meiji Restoration. The natural inclination, for all the reasons we've discussed, is to avoid villainizing the defeated Tokugawa. If you're in the Meiji government in the 1870s, you just have to help people move on. But then, who's going to play the villains of the piece? You can't just not have any, since that raises a lot of awkward questions. Without villains, what did we need to even fight about? So somebody has to wear the Darth Vader helmet, and the choice of who's going to do it determines a lot about the nature of the story you tell when you're telling the story of the Meiji Restoration. To put it another way, yes, the Meiji Restoration is a story mostly of heroes, but it can't just be heroes or the whole thing takes on this weirdly futile cast. You can choose to do what the early Meiji leadership did and pick out some domains in the north and east as villains who fought on even after the noble surrender of the Shogun, but it does make it difficult for everyone to unify around the flag. You could, with some justification, call the foreigners the villains for throwing everything into chaos, but for a country trying to westernize, that could get a little awkward. So that's really the problem with the Meiji Restoration. It's so tangled, and it's so complex. The original debate of the 1850s was about nothing more than renegotiating the relationship between the Shogun and the Great Lords, but that transformed into a war over the legitimacy of the Shogunate itself, and then another war over the legitimacy of Japan's social structure. The whole thing ended up tearing down the old system and trying to import a new one, while simultaneously wrapping back in on itself with a new debate over the relationship between the winners and the losers. After two decades of fighting, we've gone from discussing how the winners of the Battle of Sekigahara should treat the losers, to discussing how the winners of the Battle of Toba Fushimi should treat the losers. Truly, the more things change, the more they stay the same. If all of this seems really complex, you're, you're not wrong. So it's no wonder, then, that when the Meiji leadership had to look back and decide how to portray its birth, how to portray the Restoration, they decided to sidestep all of these awkward issues and make the whole story about the Emperor and Imperial Restoration. If you just focus on the idea that the Emperor should have been in charge, so we put him in charge, that allows you to ignore all the complexities we've spent 20 episodes outlining, 
and instead focus on a nice, clean narrative of restoring the rule of an imperial institution that really hadn't held power for a thousand years. As the power of Imperial Japan continued to grow, and the Meiji regime took root, the story of the Restoration started to take on a double meaning. On the one hand, it was celebrated by modernizers, who took up the torch of Okubo Toshimichi and celebrated the introduction of Western science, technology, and social and political ideals. On the other hand, a growing number of intellectuals worried about the death of uniquely Japanese values in a modernizing and westernizing society. How far could Japan go in allowing ideas from the West before it ceased to really be Japan anymore? The Restoration was a point of pride in terms of helping give birth to the new Japan, but it did underscore just how vulnerable Japan was to the West. For a certain segment of elite policymakers, especially the ones in the army, that feeling of insecurity was what came to dominate their views. Japan's drive for a colonial empire, its expansion into Asia, its war with the United States, for a lot of key decision makers, the deciding factor in making those decisions was a shared sense that at the first sign of weakness, the West would devour Japan whole. That attitude was perhaps best laid out at the Tokyo War Crimes Trials by Ishiwara Kanji, the architect of Japan's invasion of Manchuria, and a true believer in the notion of an apocalyptic race war between the East and the West. When asked at the trial to account for his actions, Ishiwara exploded, quote, Haven't you heard of Perry? Don't you know anything about your country's history? Tokugawa Japan believed in isolation, and then along came Perry to open those doors. He aimed his guns and said, If you do not deal with us, you had better watch out for these guns. Open your doors and negotiate with other countries, too. Japan did open its doors, but when it did, it found out that all those countries were all extremely aggressive. For its own defense, it took America as its teacher and set about learning how to be aggressive. Japan became America's disciples, so why don't you subpoena Perry from the other world and try him as a war criminal? End quote. For Ishiwara and his allies, the whole thing was pretty cut and dried. The Meiji Restoration was purely and simply Japan learning how to fight back against the West. After the Second World War, the Restoration took on a new set of meanings. The Second World War had proven conclusively that, all propaganda nonwithstanding, Japan had not caught up with the West. Instead, the West had almost destroyed it. For businessmen, for government leaders, for those concerned with national wealth and standing, the post-war goal of Japan was to complete a process that had begun in the 1860s, to catch up with the nations of the West and eventually surpass them. In their view, the mission of the Meiji Restoration was not complete. It would last for over a hundred years, and it was not until the 1980s that Japan would finish what Okubo Toshimichi and the other Meiji leaders had begun when it surpassed the nations of Europe in economic terms and began to economically compete with the United States. For those outside the upper echelons of power, especially out in the countryside, the Restoration meant something else altogether there was an increasing tendency towards sympathy with the Tokugawa, and an increasing feeling in the countryside that their unique regional lifestyles and cultures 
had been forcibly suppressed by technocrats in Tokyo like Ito and Okubo in the pursuit of an unattainable goal of parity with the West. Interest in local culture, regional languages, and regional festivals began to develop all over Japan. So did sympathy for even the most hardline of Tokugawa supporters. This was the period, for example, when the first dramas portraying the Shinsengumi as heroes, not as villains, began to appear. You can see this a lot, actually, in defeated nations. For example, after the twin disasters of World War I and World War II in Germany, the image of the German Empire was badly tarnished both for losing the first war and enabling the second. At the same time, there was a revival of interest in the old princely states of the Holy Roman Empire that had come before. Where previously the Holy Roman Empire had been portrayed as divided and weak in a state that had allowed the other powers of Europe to victimize Germans, in the 1850s and 1860s, that image began to change. Now the empire was viewed as a time of relative prosperity and cultural flourishing. The divided states of the empire became emblematic not of weakness, but of a balance of power that protected the regional peculiarities of Germany while providing a degree of stability. Much the same thing happened in terms of the image of Tokugawa Japan. Rather than a backward and divided nation that required rescuing by Meiji technocrats, the Tokugawa era began to symbolize a birth of a uniquely Japanese culture, and an era of relative prosperity and stability. And, to be fair, there is mathematically something to that point. After all, the Holy Roman Empire endured in one form or another for a thousand years, and the Tokugawa Shogunate for nearly 270. Compare that to 48 and 77 years respectively for the German and Japanese imperial states, and you can see how one would say that the first arrangement was way more stable. Today, the legacy of Meiji Japan is a complicated one because all of these layered meanings exist on top of each other. The sense of victimhood at the hands of the West has been weakened to a large degree thanks to a closer U.S.-Japan relationship, but I've still met people who complain that Japan is an American vassal state in all but name, and that the United States will never treat Japan as an equal. They are a minority today, but they do still exist. The restoration today is, in some cases, a proud story of the birth of modern Japan, and in others it's a tragedy of the death of a uniquely Japanese social and political arrangement. It's a glorious example of people from across the nation coming together for a common goal, and a sad one of the end of ancient cultures and institutions. For some, the legacy of the restoration is the birth of Japanese democracy, and the introduction of the notions of human rights and representation. For others, Japan's war against the West in the 1940s, the brutal destruction of China in the 1930s, it was all the natural culmination of a victim mentality created during the Restoration. In each of these cases, what separates the different interpretations is not so much the facts of the events, but the facts of one's own life. When I think of the Restoration, personally, I think of living in the city of Hakodate in Hokkaido in the summer of 2009, the same place where the Tokugawa sympathizers of Enomoto Takeaki made their last stand. When I was there, the city hosted an event commemorating the anniversary of Hokkaido being opened as a treaty port. 
The advertisements for the event were written as these kind of fancily designed invitations for a party addressed to Commodore Matthew Perry. I remember thinking how incongruous that seemed to me. I guess I was expecting something closer to the image that Ishiwara Kanji had of Matthew Perry, as a man who taught Japan the harsh lessons of geopolitics by quite literally holding the government hostage at gunpoint. When I asked a Japanese friend about it, she seemed surprised at my attitude, and the more I thought about it, the more I thought that for her, yeah, of course, what I was saying made no sense. For her, Perry brought the West to Japan. The West had given her the chance to travel the globe, to go to university, to use technology, all these wonderful things. So naturally, she would be disposed to view Perry favorably. She's living in an age where the benefits of what Perry did vastly outweigh the costs. One imagines that a samurai in the 1870s trying to farm now that he'd lost his livelihood, or a Japanese army officer viewing the 1930s through a prism of a predestined battle between America and Japan, might see things a little differently. And this gets us back to something we talked about in the atomic bomb episodes. Like most of history, especially the complex and messy bits, how we view or interpret the Meiji Restoration says a lot more about our own times and our own biases than it does about the times we're describing. That's, of course, far from a uniquely Japanese phenomenon. If you're an American, where you live in the United States and your political leanings will have far more of an impact on your view of the American Civil War than anything else. If you take two Frenchmen, one from Paris and one from one of France's more conservative regions, you'll get two very different answers when you ask them about the French Revolution, especially if your second Frenchman is from the region of the Vendée, which was devastated by the revolutionary government for attempting counter-revolution. How we write history is determined by the times we live in, which is why no interpretation of history is ever going to be fixed as the right one. Speaking of comparisons to revolutionary France, that's the last thing I want to talk about with this series. Remember, I started this 21-episode series way back in the fall as a way to both write the show and study for my PhD exams, and one of the questions I was asked on those exams was whether I thought the Meiji Restoration was a revolution. I think this is a pretty important question, simply because our archetype in our heads of what a revolution should be is very different from what we see in the Restoration. When you think of a revolutionary government, it's often one that exists for profoundly ideological reasons. To impose a certain kind of Enlightenment ideology, or Marxism-Leninism, or Maoism, or what have you, on the state. But the Meiji Restoration isn't that ideological. Ideology is a part of it, but what really gets the domains to turn on the Tokugawa is power politics. And after all, the faction that wins out in the Restoration is not really ideological. It's devoted to the idea of national power, not a specific notion of the way the world should be. So is the Restoration not a revolution because it's insufficiently ideological, or do we look at revolutions the wrong way? It's a complicated question, but I do think it's more the latter than the former. When the French Revolution gets taught in schools, it's usually taught in a pretty basic way. People start reading philosophy with crazy ideas about equal rights and all that nonsense. Frenchmen read them and they think it sounds pretty cool, so they overthrow their king and they impose these ideas. 
But that's a huge oversimplification. After all, no revolution anywhere has ever imposed its ideology without first playing a careful game of power politics to get into the halls of power. Broadly speaking, you can say a revolution follows three phases. First, the old regime is overthrown. This is pretty hard to do, and making it happen usually involves building a large coalition of people who might not agree on policy, but who do agree that they want the old ways gone. Second, the coalition seizes power, and then turns on itself, as the different parts no longer have a threat which bind them together. Third, the winning faction of the coalition imposes its specific ideological vision. This is more or less what happens in Paris during the French Revolution, or in Moscow during the Russian Revolution. And I think the same could be said of the Meiji Restoration. The Restoration was not an Enlightenment Revolution or a Marxist uprising led by goateed Bolshevik types. Echo the ideas of a great historian of Japan named W.G. Beasley, I think it was a revolution, but it was fundamentally a nationalist one. I bring that up because, again, revolutions are usually taught as being all about these all-encompassing ideologies, but I think the Meiji Restoration shows something different. Ideology doesn't mean much if you don't have the power to impose your views, and revolutions, fundamentally, are all about power. That's the Restoration in a nutshell, a power struggle with an ideological totem, the Emperor, attached to justify it. That's why just looking at the period and saying it was all about bringing back the Emperor isn't enough, and that's why we spent 21 episodes on the topic. So that's that. We're done. It's over. Next week we'll do... Oh god, I'm not sure. Something different. I don't know about you, but I've had enough of the 19th century to last me for a little while. But please, get in touch. Tell me what you thought. Like I said at the beginning of the show, I do have some future projects, vaguely in my mind, that would utilize this longer, multi-episode format, and I want to know what people think of it. So, let me know, and with that, that's all for this week. Thank you very much for listening. Special thanks this week to Nathan Smith and Eduardo Vasquez Fernandez for donating to support the show. To join them, to find out more about this week's episode or any other episode, or to submit ideas for future episodes, check out the podcast webpage at www.historyofjapan.wordpress.com or our Facebook page at facebook.com slash historyofjapanpodcast. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you next week for... Oh, God, who even knows anymore? I guess it will just have to be a surprise.